from baseball's top personalities. The Hall of Famer, one of the great TV broadcasters, Bob Costas is here on A's Cast Live. To the A's legendary players. Five-time Major League Baseball home run champ, Mark McGuire is with us here. You never know what stories you're going to hear. We used to come out here to lunch and run with our shirts off. <laughs> you would say. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We got some heavyweight media guys here. Buster Only from ESPN, the former GM Dan O'Dowd from MLB Network and also from ESPN and former player Doug Glanville. But we'll start with Buster right here on A's Unfiltered. Well, now joining joining us here on A's Cast Live, you know he's one of our favorites. We bring up his podcast, Baseball Tonight, all the time. It's the... We like to call ourselves the number one podcast for teams, but the number one podcast in our sport, no question. Buster Olney is your host. Buster, we love reading you. We love listening to you every day. It's been a while. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, You know, almost a quarter of the way into the season, having fun, great storylines all over the place. How are you doing? Good, good. What do you think of our new set here? It's beautiful. I love, you know, there's a part of me, I must say, because you've got that, uh, I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm colorblind. And I grew up <laughs> as, in the 70s collecting helmets. And the cool thing is, even though being colorblind, I can see really deep colors like deep green and deep gold and deep red. Mm-hmm. And so I loved as a kid, the Oakland helmet, you know, uh, and I pretend that I would be Bill North. Yeah. Or one of those guys, you know, diving head first, stealing bases. And so your set is so great because the colors for me as a colorblind person are vibrant. I know. Uh, it, I, it's, I've always loved the A's colors because of that. It makes you think of Sal Bando and Gene Tennis and Burt Campanaris. I mean, we have their bobbleheads here, but that t- this helmet right here just screams 70s. Right. Uh, Joe Rudy. You know, the only part of me that's a little better was that I grew up a Dodger fan. Yeah. And so I've got 1974 all over my memory. (laughs) Uh, You know, they they lose the Dodgers lose four games to one. The only game they win uh, when Mike Marshall picks off Herb Washington at first base in that game. uh, I, you know, I wish that World Series turned out, out better. But that when we have those conversations about what was the greatest team ever. That team has to be in that talk. So we're at that quarter pole where you've played 40-something games for, for all the teams in baseball, and you really can kind of sit back and say, okay, who are we now and where do we need to go? What are the biggest stories for you so far at this quarter pole? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think the the Mets have taken a big step forward this year. You know, the surge of that team with Steve Cohen, their owner. Uh, they go out and spend all that money to get Max Scherzer and Starling Marte and Eduardo Escobar, uh, Mark Canna, change the culture of that team. And even though they have injuries now to Scherzer as well as to Grom, the expectation is they're going to be one of the most aggressive teams. And I'm, you know, as someone who's worked in New York a long time, I'm fascinated with the dynamic that's going to develop between Steve Cohen and Hal Steinbrenner, who's never really had a team on the other side of the city to challenge him. So when Juan Soto becomes a free agent down, you know, in the years ahead, the pressure that's going to be on Hal is going to be very different. So that's going to be fun. Uh, Aaron Judge, you know, betting on himself so big before the start of the season and to see him 
as you and I speak, he's on a pace at 66 homers. Wow. I think that bet, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that bet's absolutely fantastic. And you just, you know, individuals around the game, Manny Machado having a great season down in San Diego, uh, emerging as an offensive player in a way that I certainly didn't anticipate. Um, you know, all of that is really fun. You know, we've seen a lot of great one-two punches, Hall of Famers in the same lineup together. Uh, it's happened throughout baseball. But I made this point the other day because, of course, we, we've, we've had to take on the Angels a couple times. With Trout and Otani, both healthy at the same time. And you think of what Otani is as an offensive player, as a pitcher. Trout's an all-time great. I just think as a one-two punch, I was trying to figure out. Like, here in the Bay Area, you had Mays and McCovey, but I'm talking about an entertainment factor. I don't know if we have ever seen a one-two punch with the entertainment factor. We're in the entertainment business. The entertainment factor of Trout and Otani since maybe Ruth and Garrick. How do you feel about the one-two punch in Anaheim? I, I don't think Ruth and Garrick, and I, this is going to feel like sacrilege, I don't think Ruth and Garrick are close to what these two guys are. Yeah. Because we've never seen anybody like Otani. You know, last year when we had the conversation about who should be MVP of the American League and people would cite Vlad Jr.'s uh, numbers, and, and I'd go, yeah, that's all nice, but no one's ever done what Shohei Otani has done. Joe Madden, the Angels manager, told me last year you know, this is something we may never see again in our lifetime or in, in three lifetimes, in 100 years. Uh, and here's the thing, Otani's backing it up. Like we're seeing <laughs> him be, build the foundation yeah. to another season like he had last year. And oh, by the way, if we want to say that Otani is Batman, the Robin might be the best player in the history of baseball. Yeah. <laughs> in Trout, no one's done what Trout has done early in, in his career it's great to see him healthy, uh, and it's fun, the possibility that we might actually get to see Mike Trout in a postseason on a, on a big stage. I think he would thrive. I think Otani would thrive. That is a fun team to watch. There's no doubt about it. Well, they're going with the six-man rotation, something that I'm really looking at this year as now we're going to go down to 13 pitchers, but we're already starting to see it, right? You've seen the Tigers and the Rays use 11 different starters. We've heard that the average team will use 13 in a year, and you just think you only have so many pitchers. You only have so many guys in the minor leagues. I mean, I, what, what is the average team going to use in starters this year, and is this sustainable? I think that once you get to 13 pitchers, that becomes a great a, a question that takes on more weight, right? Early on, because we had the lockout, uh, teams were able to carry extra pitchers. You know, they extended the deadline on that, and, and teams haven't felt the stress of that yet. And, and we saw last year, I think Milwaukee was really the first team that showed the potential of using a six-man staff. You know, they rested their guys on a regular basis. And let's face it, for the most part, have limited their starters to six innings. And it's worked. But, you know, Craig Council, the Brewers manager, and I had a conversation early in the year. And he talked about that, like, boy, once you get to 13 pitchers, it becomes a different math equation. Um, I don't know if it's, a, if it's sustainable. But here's the thing. The teams now have turned so many pitchers from uh, marathoners into sprinters. I don't know if they're going to have a choice to do anything but constantly rotate those 12th and 13th spots on their on their pitching staffs 
uh, with guys in the minor leagues. So you might have your core of, you know, six starters or five starters and then rotate one up from the minor leagues. And then you have your group of relievers. Maybe you're rotating somebody else in. But I do think having uh, more pitchers, leaning on more pitchers and having them show uh, take on greater or less responsibility for starters, uh, using six-man staffs, using more relievers, uh, that's just part of where we are in baseball right now. It's part of the reason why offensive numbers are around, are down so much around the game. And humidors. I mean, we, we've talked so yes. much about humidors, or, you know, because no one knows the answer because in a place like the Bay Area, whether we're talking Oakland or San Francisco, you put a ball in a humidor, it's going to be different to how it reacts in Kansas City or Colorado or Arizona or South Florida or New York. I mean, we – we really don't know, do we? San Diego versus Minnesota, like how the ball should react and, and how it's different in every city and every climate. You're exactly right. Uh, the composition of the ball, the quality of the baseballs has been so much of a part of the conversation. I'm sorry, sure you saw your old friend Eric Chavez. Yeah. His, uh, his quote earlier in the year where he talked about a conversation among his players, the speculation about whether or not they put in juiced balls into nationally televised games because they want to see more offense. Uh, You know, I know baseball officials are driven crazy by that kind of conversation, but I kind of feel like they've earned it Yes, (laughs) (laughs) because they've had all those studies done where the baseball has been different from year to year to year. I remember once at an all-star game, walking into a conversation inadvertently between Dan Halem, who's the number two official in baseball and Max Scherzer, who then this last year was ahead of the union and Max is just going at him. Like, what are you doing with the baseballs? Well, how can you make these changes without approving it? Uh, it, It's a constant conversation. I think it's unfortunate for baseball. I really am looking forward to that time when we can actually assume that the quality of the baseball will be relatively consistent because you imagine like if the Warriors were playing it on a nightly basis, there was a conversation about whether the ball was too small or too big or, or what the yeah. quality of it was. It, it only happens in baseball. Oh, the Bay Area would be freaking out. Buster, that'd be right. like, it'd be like saying, okay, the Warriors on a regular night when they're on NBC Sports California playing the Suns and the Suns are on Bally Sports, ah, nobody cares. But if they're on a TNT game, we're now using the ball that goes into the hoop more. People would freak right. out. Right, exactly. You know, instead of the, I remember, uh, you know, when I was in college at Vanderbilt, I played with some of the women's basketball players, and the ba- basketball they would use would always be what twenty eight and a half smaller, inches, yeah. twenty nine and a half, and that thing you could shoot it like crazy. Imagine if that was the conversation: is the ball just a little bit smaller for the Warriors and the shooting percentage? It would be crazy, but that's what's going on in baseball, and it really has been going on for four or five years. Speaking of the factory, your alma mater, how about your guy, Tony Kemp? Yeah, he, he really is, you know, become one of my favorite players that I've ever uh, covered in baseball. I got a chance just before the start of the season. This is when the lockout was going on. I went down to Nashville. He was working out at Vanderbilt. And I got a chance to sit and chat with him for 15, 20 minutes. I just love, A, his intensity, and B, his integrity. Uh And I've always, you know, I knew him when he was in college a little bit. But then when everything happened with the sign stealing in Houston and to hear the stories afterward uh, about how he was one of the guys who told the veterans, I don't want any part of this. I don't want to participate in this. Don't relay the signs. 
That was so impressive to me. It said so much about him as a person. And I actually, this spring was the first time I got a chance to talk to him about it. Like, how did you as a rookie tell veterans on that team, no, I'm not going to participate? Because you know, and I know, we've been around teams. The idea that a rookie is going to tell a bunch of veterans that says a lot about the person. No. Can you imagine having that conversation with Carlos Beltran? Yeah, right. Exactly. And someone who, you know, Carlos Beltran on a Hall of Fame trajectory and looking him in the eye or, you know, guys who've been in the big leagues a long time and to to say flat out, nope, not right from the beginning, because there were guys on that team who we know after the fact, once they got caught, they were like, well, I didn't really want to get involved. or <laughs> No, it wasn't involved. Tony was right from the get go. Nope, not doing it. Don't ask me. You guys do what you are going to do, but I'm not getting involved. You know, let's end on this. One of the fun things about our game is talking about the individual players, the greatness, as you mentioned, Aaron Judge. I mean, we haven't seen 60 bombs since Sammy Sosa. You know, you think about that or Giancarlo. But when you talk about the best player in the game, it's amazing. I mean, what we're talking about with Soto and what's going to happen in his future, Machado, what he's doing for our buddy Bob Melvin in San Diego. There are so many great players, and I think more importantly, to get people more interested in our game again, Buster, I think there's so many great athletes that we have in our game. Oh, phenomenal. Uh, you know, Juan Soto, I think you would agree with me, in a, in a perfect world, in, in, a, in a better lineup, he probably is the best hitter in baseball, pound for pound, in terms of being like his generation's Ted Williams, uh, Trout, uh, just everything that he can do. He always seems to get better. It's like, you know, his career trajectory is the side of a pyramid. Yeah, tell me about year, it. We got adjustments. We got to live it. I love Manny Machado's story because I don't know how you felt when he was with the. Uh, when he was with the Orioles, you thought, okay, the guy's an elite defender. You know, I had conversations with Brooks Robinson about him, how good he could be there. Teammates were telling me how good he could be. But offensively, he'd kind of go up and down. Well, this year with the Padres, he's better than he's ever been. And on top of that, I think the stories you hear about him being a clubhouse leader, about a guy who's setting a tone, that's not something we would have ever envisioned you know, right up and through his free agency when the question was, how hard does he play? To see him change as a person and as a leader and as a player, that's really neat. So far this year, he's been the best player in baseball. But as you say, there are a lot of guys who could win that title by the time we get to the finish line. You know, everybody has their job and their role inside Major League Baseball. And MLB.com and MLB Network, We understand what they're trying to do and and what they mean to the game. But still, ESPN, what you guys do from a journalism standpoint, the writing that we get on ESPN.com, and I think kind of the responsibility you have with your podcast is to still, you know, talk about the game, the good, bad, and the ugly, promote it, and also dissect it and say what needs to change. Uh, do you still feel that responsibility? I know we don't have baseball tonight like we used to uh, on ESPN, but what you do with the podcast and what you do with the writing, I mean, still us baseball fans go for you, go to you for the truth. Uh, and I appreciate that, um, you know, because I, I and I that's always been my goal as a reporter. I believe that uh, the truth needs to be the absolute foundation of everything that we do. I personally, for example, this week, we had the whole thing with Josh Donaldson. I like Josh personally. 
Uh, I think, you know, I admire him as a player. I love the changes he made in his career. And I thought he made a mistake on Saturday with Tim Anderson with what he said. And I thought it was a mistake, not the next day. Just come out and say, you know what? I've heard the voices. I messed up. And, and I'm going to do better going forward. And, and if I saw Josh today, I would say that to him. And I think you would agree with me. There are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, entities where you can't necessarily get that. So I appreciate the words. Well, I, I say it all the time, and just to – you know what fans we are. We steal from you all the time, so. <laughs> we right. listen. And that's the best compliment that you can have. And I wish I could steal your studio. Oh, my God, all that green and gold. I love it. Well, you know, we'll send pictures because we finally got a – approved by major league baseball starting thursday we can do this live from the field so for home games this our set will be the oakland coliseum live from the field and meanwhile all i've got is a picture of abraham lincoln behind me your set is a lot better than me well abe was a big deal though (laughs) and you know he would have been a huge fan of the cubs probably (laughs) (laughs) you are the best buster you be well and let's do this again soon that's I always have fun talking with you. Oh, it's always great to have Buster on. And also a guy who really is my favorite on MLB Network. Here's Dan O'Dowd. Well, I say it all the time. Everybody knows how much we love MLB Network and we have all their personalities on. But my favorite by far, and it's been a while. We haven't talked to him since the winter meetings in San Diego because I don't think anybody on the network can break it down the way he does. Dan O'Dowd is with us here once again on A's Cast Live. How have you been? It's been a while. Well, it has been. Thank you so much for having me on. I love talking to you guys. The re- the truth of this is I was supposed to be on 30 minutes for- prior to this call, so uh, I owe you some extra time on this one. So I appreciate it. Love having you on, and I look forward to our conversation. Bottom line, if this is Brian Kinney, I would have been out of here already hitting golf balls. But for you, I'll, re- I'll wait around all day. Well, I wouldn't even ask for Brian to come on. So that would have been a good – that would be a good start to begin with. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I- I've always appreciated about you on MLB Network, and just because of my relationship with Billy Bean, I've known Billy really well since uh, – you know, going back till he got the gig in the 90s, you know, David Force has been around for yep. so long with our organization. I know how hard your guy's job is. And the one thing I think the perspective, you know, we love listening to ex-players. We like listening to these guys in the media. But someone like yourself, you truly understand what it's like, the business of baseball, how to build teams. When you look at your role with the network, how do you go about it? Because you bring something, a, a skill set, really. I mean, John Hart pops on every once in a while, but you bring a skill set that no one else has. Yeah, you know, it's unique. I mean, we're all a byproduct of our life experiences. Even as a GM, my life experience in the markets that I was in will be different from other GMs in the markets and the ownership groups they've been around. What, what I try to do, though, from day one is be transparent with my thoughts, um, recognizing, as you said, how difficult the job is. Uh, but also, you know, calling it as I see it based upon how I look at it, which doesn't make it be right, but it's simply, you know, my thoughts on a given area. I've never done the job trying to position myself to do another job in the game. I've tried to be as honest and forthright with my opinions and recognizing that there are going to be some people that accept that and, and understand where I'm coming from. Some will get angry, but people like Billy, who's a dear friend of mine too, he, he'll get that. He'll get you know, that, uh, you know, Dan is speaking from 
the heart about how he looks at a particular situation and what his thoughts are on it. I always wanted the, the viewer or the audience to come away with a feeling that I'm, I'm being authentic with them. Right or wrong, I'm trying to be as authentic as I possibly can. You know, and you think about the situation, you know, you understand what you've done in your career when you're a team trying to get a new ballpark, building a new ballpark, as you did all those years in Cleveland. You know, where Billy and David are right now is such a tough situation because all of these years of trying to win and winning, but it's always the unknown, right? There's always the carrot out there about the new ballpark, the new ballpark. Now we talk about a parallel path of either Oakland or Las Vegas. Just talk about for Billy and David, just how tough the job is right now to run the Oakland athletics. I mean, I I look at it this way. Um, Billy and David have done something that is really unheard of the game. I know that they haven't gone to a world series or won a world series, which by the way, I, I don't think is any indication of the quality of a front office within our game because there's skill and luck involved in postseason because of the shorter sample sizes, they've had plenty of teams that could have gone on and won the World Series. Saying that, though, that Billy and David, up to this year, every single year, no matter what the circumstances are, always, for the most part, put a very competitive product on the field. They never went back to the foundation roots of tearing something down completely and building it from scratch. I mean, you look at the careers of other executives in the game, and, and – no deference or criticism of them at all, but I look at Theo Epstein, went to Boston, won left. He went to Chicago, won left. David Dombrowski, won in Miami, left to go to Detroit, won in Detroit, left to go to Boston, won in Boston, now is in Philadelphia. You know, there's a, a litany of executives that have won in a given place and then chosen to leave, and that's because, guys, it is so hard to, to rebuild an organization to, to get to the point where you're going to win and then have to tear it somewhat down again and try to win again. It's, it's emotionally hard. It's physically draining. It's, you lose political capital within the, the structure and the environment that you're in and the marketplace you're in. So what David and Billy have been able to accomplish year after year, for me, is a testimony of how good they are, what they do. I think Billy Bean is a Hall of Famer for me. I don't care. If he's never won a World Series, I truly feel Billy is a slam dunk Hall of Famer because I think he's changed the way people look at the game. I think Dayton Moore is going through that now in Kansas City. They won. He went through this massive rebuild. They won in Kansas City. Now he's trying to rebuild it again, and it's just hard. And the other part makes it so difficult is that your life experience in the game teaches you, okay, in this given situation, we should look at this a certain way, but the game is changing and evolving all the time. And so you have to constantly change and evolve with it. And even though your experience plays a role, your ability to adapt to a current environment is just, it's really challenging. And I, you know, Billy, after doing it for so many years, I'm just, I'm humbled. Um, and he has been able to stick with it. I'm sure having David by his side makes it a little bit easier but it's still really challenging for those two guys. And this is the first time that I can recall that they've ever really gone into a rebuild. And uh, I'm sure it's painful because no matter how long you've been in the game, losing stinks, period. You know, in the offseason, Perry Manassian, the general manager of the Angels, talked about how the average team will use 13 starters in a season. And I was like, wow. And then I'm looking at the MLB Network notes yesterday, and Detroit – 
Detroit has now tied the Rays, and the Rays obviously with a lot of the openers, but Detroit and the Rays have already at the quarter pole used 11 different starters. And I'm thinking, how big can this number get? You're only, I mean, you got a 40-man roster. You can only get so many guys to the big leagues. Like, what are we talking about here with the amount of starters people are going to use in a season? And the number one question for you is, is this sustainable? No, it's not. And um, the Tigers have in a year. I mean, their offense hasn't performed at all. But, I mean, they base their foundation on their young starting pitching. You know, Mize, Manning, Scooble, and all of them are hurt right now. And um, it just shows you, you know, Kansas City based their rebuild on all the young starting pitching that they drafted, Coar, you know, Lynch, Singer. And pitching is really, really volatile, and it's really unpredictable. You know, guys, we live in an industry where velocity now makes up so much of how we value players. I just don't think velocity, the way it's construed in today's game, is sustainable within the pitcher ability to stay healthy. I just don't think it's possible. And I don't, I don't think these things are going to change until the industry puts some more emphasis on command control, working quickly on the mound, strike throwing ability, changing speeds, pitching in the context of your delivery, and not being max effort on every single pitch. I just don't think the body is uh, structured the way it is to you know, withstand the amount of velocity and the max effort tied to that velocity that we're currently seeing in the game. So I don't think it's sustainable. Yeah, and it's just sad hearing about all the surgeries and kids are getting, you know, growing up as a pitcher myself and I ended up pitching in college, you know, none of us had Tommy John surgery. And the amount of kids that are, and I mean kids, kids under 18 having, having Tommy John yep. surgery is absolutely alarming. I want to get to bullpens because, you know, I, I know with Oakland, I know you can say this with a lot of other teams. I, I forgot sakes, Philadelphia, you know, there's years where we go, hey, this is going to be a strength for us coming out of spring training, coming out of Mesa, Arizona. And then all of a sudden, it's it's a dumpster dive. Why is it so <laughs> hard to build a bullpen consistently? Well, again, it's, a, it's the biggest area of volatility uh, on your roster building process. And bullpen arms are more unpredictable than any other um, projection, performance projection of any other uh, subset on your team for the simple reason. Most bullpen guys are guys that have been failed starters. Not failed, but their their pitch mix and their ability to, you know, throw more than two pitches or command their fastball exceptionally well. And then we've gotten into a game now where um, pitch tunneling and pitch selection has become and pitch shaping has become such a part of the dialogue. I mean, there's more breaking ball pitches thrown in our game than fastballs anymore. And the amount of stress that you're putting on the arm to be able to throw high-velocity sliders, for example, is incredible. Now, topple that with usage patterns of bullpens year in and year out where guys are throwing a ton of max effort pitches in high-leverage situations so there's a tremendous amount of stress level and the workload is enormous. Like, I, Tampa's done an incredible job with their bullpens year in and year out. Look at the amount of injuries of players that they had in that bullpen just two years ago or three years ago. Um, they, they can't sustain health. There's just no way to sustain health. At this level of velocity, the amount of, of, of dynamic breaking balls are now throwing in the game and the way they're being used and the amount of innings and pitches they're being asked to suck up through the course of a 1,440-inning 
pitch season. It's just it, it's impossible for one health, number two, the sustainability of the performance because of those factors. Don't forget you can watch Dan across MLB Network's programming, including the MLB Draft Combine coming up on June 16th and 17th in San Diego. I love talking about the business of baseball with you because you get it because a lot of people just look at baseball as players and the players' numbers, and that's why I bring up Juan Soto. I live in Silicon Valley. I grew, you know, I've been around. I've been here watching Silicon Valley grow right. for all these years, right? So – when people tell me about Juan Soto and how much that he is worth, I just go, listen, baseball, where it's going now, I believe we're a content platform now. That's why Apple, Peacock, right. Amazon, Hulu, they just, they need games, they need programming. So if you're going to tell me one player is worth $500 million, I'm like, what's the return on investment? The days of your cable deals are going away. I understand he's great. You can compare him to Ted Williams or whatever, but how can one player generate that much revenue for you? Is it possible? Is anybody really worth that kind of money? Can that player give you the return on investment? Well, I think if you look at it historically, Jeff, the bottom line is, is that anytime you have uh, 25% of your payroll tied up into any more than three players, those teams rarely ever, if at all, win at the major league level. So he is only – he's a great player, but it's, it's the, the total asset allocation of payroll. So if you take a model that you're going to spend 50% of your revenue on, um, on, on major league payroll, and Juan Soto hypothetically is going to take up $50 million of that. Say it's a 10-year deal at $50 million a year then you're, you're ultimately you're going to have to have a revenue base that your, your, your payroll is going to have to be pushing somewhere between 350 and $400 million to be able to put a model in place where his particular salary doesn't destroy your capability of surrounding him with 24 other pl- or 25 other players that allows you to ultimately have sustained success. You know, I'm not saying that he's not that valuable, all I'm saying is that in context to the development of a team, it's really, really problematic to pay any player that large a percentage of your overall payroll. Again, unless your payroll capabilities are through the roof, and we've never seen those type of consistent payrolls, or if at all, in, our, in the history of our game. We'll play both sides of it. If you have him as the player, or you're the GM that wants to acquire him, what do you think he's worth, and how would you handle it? Well, the closer they get to his free agency years, his worth is going down dramatically. If the Washington baseball team, the Nationals, do not feel they can sign him, they're faced with a crippling decision. And I say this, you could trade Juan Soto for the greatest group of prospects that there is in the game, and more than likely, none of those prospects will ever come close to generating the type of war value that he can in your roster construction. Saying that, if you have no capabilities of signing him to the, the dollars that you mentioned or anything close to that, then you have to build your team in the aggregate. You have to be able to say, okay, how many good young players can we get back? How many do we feel has a chance to turn impact? How many do we feel are a chance to be solid contributors? And then how do we allocate the rest of the resources to build a 26-man roster that can compete for a championship without having that particular individual 
be one of the best players on that roster. If you're the acquiring club, you have to go through that same exact thought process. You know, I look at what the A's got back, for an example, for Matt Olson. And if, if and, and everybody kept talking about how Alex Anthropoulos made a great deal because you got great young player Matt Olson. You got him signed to what I feel is a very fair contract for his capabilities. But I look at it, the talent level that he gave up, Shane Lagaliers right now, I can make an argument, is the best catching prospect in the game of baseball. His value to the Oakland A's over the next seven years, um, depending upon service time issues, six to seven years, is absolutely enormous. If Pache figures out how to hit, because his defensive war is like one of the best in the game, the value that they got back from Matt Olson when the Braves could have signed Freddie Freeman almost to the identical dollar amount. Uh, again, I know the dynamics of the, of the negotiations or the relationships that took place in there. I'm looking at it going, oh my God, I would have much rather held on to that talent and signed Freddie Freeman, even if I've got to eat a back end of that deal, that maybe his value is not what it is in the first four years of that deal. And so I thought the A's, for example, got enormous value back as they construct their club moving forward because they have two catchers right now that are legitimate all-star type catchers at the most demanding, hard-to-acquire position within the game. So either guy could turn into multiple other assets for them at some point in time if they choose to go down that path. So I'm trying to use that comparison in the same way. You've got to get so much more back than Soto Soto is such the, even a better player uh, than Matt Olson. That's why these deals are really, really difficult to come by. Let's end on this. If you ever thought about coming back again and you've been sitting out of the game, you've been watching everybody operate, you, you, you see how the markets change, how philosophies change, what's the one thing that you think you would say, I'm going to do this and that's why I would be successful versus the other 29 teams. What have you seen? Maybe something in the market you could manipulate. Honestly, I think all the clubs recognize it. Um, I'm just not sure all of them know how to do it. And it, looking back at my career, I'm hypercritical of everything that I did well, and certainly even more hypercritical of all the things I did poorly. But the one thing that I, I always felt like there was a competitive advantage, and to this day, I still feel there's a competitive advantage. If you can scout well and you can develop better, no matter what the limitations that you may have at your major league level, you will be very successful. And I think there's more competitive bandwidth right now in the development process of our game than ever before because there, is a, there would be an opportunity to take what I call instinctive intelligence. So instinctive intelligence is you. You've spent all your, your life around the game. You, you've played it, you've studied it, you watch it, you comprehend it, you apply it. You, there's, there's a way to take a group of men with, or women with incredible instinctive intelligence, combine that with intellectual intelligence that exists now within our game, but I wouldn't want it to exist in our game to the point that, that now that instinctive, I mean, that intellectual intelligence groups makes up the bulk of the decisions within the front office without the balance of an instinctive intelligence group, making sure that the direction that the one group provides 
leads to the proper decision in each and every player. The bottom line is what's never going to change about the game is the clubs and the individuals involved in those clubs. If you select the right players and you put them in a world-class development process, I have absolutely no doubt you can win and you can sustain winning. Look at the Astros. They lose George Springer. They've got Kyle Tucker. They lose Correa. They've got Pena. They lose Cole. They lose Greinke. They've got Valdez. They've got Urquidy. They've got Garcia, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the Dodgers. They lose players. They plug other young players in. And those, those are clubs with very large payrolls. So if you scout players well and you develop them exceptionally well, you can turn what I call um, value players into contributors and contributed players into impact players and impact players into sustainable impact players. That'll never change in the game. It's just the ability to do that even better now than when I was running teams, for me, gives you a huge competitive advantage uh, within this industry right now. Absolute radio gold. It doesn't get any better than that. I got to tell you, it is always an honor to have you on the program. You know we will be watching. Uh, Appreciate your time. You be well, and let's talk soon. Thank you so much for having me on. And we will end with, we call one of the smartest guys in baseball. He's an Ivy League guy. He's a former player and now a great broadcaster, writer, and a professor at the University of Connecticut, our buddy Doug Glamville. Well, we we mention it all the time when we have him on. He's the smartest guy in baseball. (laughs) Nobody better. How are you? It's been a while. Hey guys, how you doing? I'm doing well. Like, I can't complain. I yeah. gotta, I gotta think for you, like what, like finals, school, everything's over, <laughs> and you can just concentrate on baseball now. Well, no, I, you know, this semester, once I started, once I found out I was gonna do Sunday night radio with ESPN, yeah, I, uh, I realized like, wait a minute, it's gonna be a lot to teach in the same semester where I'm doing the playoffs, and you know, all the the pennant race stuff. So I decided that it'd be better if I just uh, taught in the spring where you start in January, you don't have the conflict. So, uh, but I'm still paying attention to the materials and chiming in when I can, but I'm looking toward the spring semester to kick it in gear. So what is it like for you now as your career is expanding and you start looking at the different things that you're doing, like you said, now we're going to be talking about postseason and everything. So, so what's going on and how great is this for your career? I mean, it's great. You know, what's so interesting is I realized all those years at ESPN, I hadn't done really any playoffs or I had I'm, like this year, I'm calling the all-star game on radio with John Shambi. Awesome. I, I haven't done any of that stuff. I mean, I was a studio guy mostly. And when I did Wednesday night baseball, I was focused towards the season. And really, we knew the marquee games were really Sundays. So what I love about it is radio it's a little more low key, you know, you don't have all the production elements like meetings around like what graphics you're using. It's just like, hey, get your information, figure out what's important to share with the fans. And what's cool is, you know, we've obviously we've been a lot of isolation in the last couple of years. I hadn't seen guys as, as for a long time. You know, I've been at Cub stuff, but I haven't been able to travel the same way. So it's good to find out like, oh, Tomas Perez is coaching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, just old teammates, you know. So that part has been um, 
really fun and I, I love it. I write a, a poem before every game and I, I read it and, you know, they just say, Hey, whatever you want to do. <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. You know, when we look around baseball, we were just talking about it and we'll get into about the Yankees and the A's. And I, cause I think it's an interesting dynamic between the team with the best record and the team with the worst record and kind of where baseball is. And one of the ways to look at this is just to look at the standings. And when you see we're not in July yet, and half the teams are not 500. What does that tell you about the sport? I mean, that's a good point. And, and you, you do see, you wonder where that line is to be the have and have nots, right? And, and the decision to, for the teams that are uh, below that line, what their decision-making process is going to be. Are they going to say, well, hey, let's just build for the future and then effectively become farm teams for the teams that are making that push? You know, I know they added another couple of playoff teams, but even that is above the line. And, and I think it should be. I don't think teams like under 500 should make the postseason when you play 162 games. I mean, that's a lot of evidence right there. Uh, but but yeah, there's no doubt that things are sorting out after we had the shortened 2020 season. And you wanted to see, you know, with that playoff format where they had all these wildcard teams and you wanted to see how things would reset. And and look, resources matter. And, and although there's teams that, like the A's have found ways to win, you know, does this be able to have that extra push to, you know, acquire someone at the deadline or just have the depth that the Dodgers have where they have like 18 all-stars. I mean, yeah, you're, you're in a better driver's seat. There's no question about that. And, and, uh, and it's something that baseball is constantly trying to address and, you know, maybe the lottery system and drafts, so maybe things will help a little bit, but there's still an elephant in the room. If you are running the A's and you got Frankie Montas, who a lot of people, and you know Peter Gammons real well, and Peter Gammons is reporting that Brian Cashman wants to come out after Frankie. His last outing, he had a no-hitter into the eighth inning. You're now pitching on this big stage. Yankees are the best team in baseball. Everybody's watching every moment. You go out again as Frankie Montas, have another good inning. How do you handle it? Do you want those phone calls rolling in right now, or do you want to wait till the very end and try and find a GM who is the most desperate or a couple super desperate GMs who are fighting each other at the very end to get Frankie? Well, you know, the advantage the A's have in this particular case, and, and some of it is a shame. We, we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. But the advantage they have is all these teams will be interested, and, and pitching has been – you know, it, it had, there was a shortage of it to some degree, even going into postseason. Once you got past Max Scherzer and a couple of those, like, who are the free agents? So they are in control. And that way you can go out and say, hey, what pieces are we looking to add? And then work that way. What team is going to give us the best shot of building where we want to go, whether it's by position or by depth or experience? So that's the advantage because it's not just the Yankees that are going to come knocking. It, it's not, And it's not just who's going to, pay the big biggest price. It's like what prospects, if you're making that move, uh, is gonna is gonna bolster your organization going forward. So I think they're still in a good position and they just have to decide those pieces of what elements there are. And and right now, look, the A's are struggling. I mean, they, they have, you know, last in, in batting average and run score, you know, they're just they're they're in such a rebuild mode that a lot of pieces are necessary. But the question is when you get these young pieces, what happens? Or do you just turn them over and, and rototill them into like some other organization? Or can you actually add the pieces to now go to the next level? And it remains to be seen based on the season. And there is, 
you know, uh, I'm finding a debate on how when you get those pieces, how to handle it, because I look at other sports, but then old school baseball, people want to say, oh, you can't compare baseball. And I go, wait a minute. Why not? Old school people want I if I draft Doug Glanville or if I trade for Doug Glanville, I want to stick you in the minors for X amount of at bats, X amount of innings pitched. And I'm going, wait a minute. I can look around at the Atlanta Braves. They got a bunch of guys who are 22, 23. I mean, how long do I really want to see guys in the minor leagues in modern-day baseball when I'm watching these other teams start to bring guys up 25 or younger? Let's go. Do you still subscribe to, I got to keep you in the minor leagues for 1,500 bats? Or, hey, man, I got to see this guy play because we know we don't want to pay guys in their 30s. I'll tell you, you make an excellent point, and and I wanted to sort of repeat that that message. You know, what you're looking at now is you have these young guys that are productive, and like right away, they're they're coming up, and they're able to produce. And and you think, let's go back to the Chicago Cubs 2016 team. You know, you have Chris Bryant, you had guys that kind of produced beyond their years. You know, and so when you have guys like that, what you're able to do is when you acquire the pieces you already have the the productivity. It's not like, oh, let me get like a middle of the order guy that's going to do now because you already have young guys that are doing that. And that's the best of all worlds because you have a longer horizon of productivity, Rizzo, all these cats that they were part of. And so the expectation is skewed younger now that when you have Acuna Juniors and Tatis and all these cats that are like producing right away, they're stars, then you don't, it doesn't give you a, as long a horizon of patience to be like, Wait a minute, why aren't these guys like, you know, yeah, fine, they're young. They are young, 22. I mean, I got drafted at 20 going to 21. So I understand that from one level, but they're, these guys are producing. And, and so, it's, so you have to try to find that combination, ideally, that you have a young guy who's beyond his years in productivity and maturity. And then, you, then you're able to have a lot more freedom when you add the other pieces of experience. So, yes, I think you can challenge the A's or challenge the organization and say, wait a minute, like, how are we doing this? Because being young is not enough of an answer anymore. And, and so in terms of what I subscribe to, you know, yeah, I, I have a sensibility around learning all the facets of the game, right? Okay, that's great. You can hit, you know, whatever, but can you run the bases? Can you slide? Do you know how to do, you know, that's not as necessary today because there's so much focus on the specialization of what's important. Do you get on base? Do you hit for some power? Are you guys throws 100 miles an hour? Uh, yeah, you're in the zone, maybe, whatever, but that's not. So they, I think there is a missing piece and a loss to development when you just focus on one element to say this is what makes you ready. But that is the game today, you know, and, and if you need a guy throwing 100, you just you get the next guy, right? <laughs> and then you bring him in, whether he can hit the corner or <laughs> uh, if you're throwing 100 and with movement, you don't have to hit a whole lot of corners, okay? <laughs> that's That's what we're looking at today. Yeah, I, I, I look at the game and from development, and I like to bring golf into it because we're golf and baseball are very similar now with the way everybody's using TrackMan and Hawkeye and the way baseball uses StatCast. I like to call them whether in golf you're a range warrior or in baseball you're, you're a batting cage or a bullpen warrior where people are going to tell you all, all these different numbers about – vertical, horizontal, spin rates, how hard you throw it, launch, and all this kind of stuff. But then once you have all these numbers, like on the range in golf, you can hit the ball a bazillion yards. But you got to go out and play golf. 
What happens when you short side yourself or you don't? You know, you got to go out and actually play the game to score. Baseball is the same way. You can sit in the bullpen, throw 100, and you can have a little moment. You, but if you can't throw strikes or if you're somebody who goes up to the plate, you can't run the bases, you can't play defense. So we have learned to, about all these great numbers where we can track what human beings and what kind of human you are, but do you know how to actually play the game when it's game time? That's something we need or we need to get better at. Yeah, the, the, well, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, all these sports, it's not just baseball or just society. The algorithms, the data is such a driver. Now, I appreciate that, especially as like a center fielder where I wanted value to be seen in my defense. And there wasn't a whole lot of metrics saying, hey, this is why you're an asset. So I, I, I applaud the idea of trying to find value. And the A's, look, they were a big part of this because – they, they started to see value in players that wasn't necessarily on the surface, you know, in the traditional ways. So there's, there's a definite positive there. But what it does, if you skew it so far one direction, you do lose a lot of the human element. Like a, a perfect example is this. Like I can say, all right, I'm on second base and I could steal third right now. So now the numbers will tell you, well, if I get caught, let's say it's one out or something, I get caught. The probability, my, my run probability, my chance of scoring a run, my run, expect, you know, the expectations, I'm saying this wrong, but terms wise, but the, the chances of me, right. So the chance of me scoring a run, if I get caught, let's say that goes down by, you know, 80%. But then if I get, if I make it, it only goes up by 40%, right? So what you start to look at is saying, well, if I steal this base, that what I've risked and what I lose by getting caught is much greater than what I gain by making it. And when you start to look at every equation like that, it's pretty easy to see why you just eliminate the stolen base altogether, right? So why, why take the risk? And, and the thing about, to me, the joy of the game or any sport or anything is actually the low percentage play. It's, it's the excitement of the impossible happening. And if you don't put a position, like a pitcher in a position say, well, what would happen if I go into the seventh here? individually, you, you do lose that. And you lose the warriors of the game, like, you know, Fernando Valenzuela versus Tom Seaver. Like, yeah, let's just see who can go 12 innings, you know, and, and that's kind of marketable. That's, I used to love looking in the box for, oh, oh Steve Carlton versus Fernando yeah. or Mario Soto versus, you know, Ron Guidry or whatever, you know? So there, there, there's trade-offs. And, and I think that when you talk about the humanity, the human element, you, you don't want to lose that. You don't want to lose that soul where everything's just numbers and stuff because you know I remember talking to Barry Bonds at the cage one day and he said and it was this is post career and he's like okay fine you shift and put everybody all over the place i get it you might be able to keep me from hitting 400 but you're not going to keep me from hitting 300 with slugging percentage <laughs> so now that's Barry Bonds but the reality is like yeah I'm, if if a person knows that can play to that he just hits it over the shift right and and of course, your whole game changes around it. But you're losing the athleticism, hit and run, stealing bases, seeing guys just putting balls in play. All that can get lost in the algorithms. And I think that's that's where you have to try to do a reset. I think of Al Davis. Was it a high percentage play to throw the ball deep? No, but Al Davis always wanted to throw deep <laughs> because it kept everybody honest all the time. And like you said, not high percentage, but sometimes you got to do stuff. I mean, I, I've been watching it, and I've been saying it because i got to do TV hits before every game, and I go, I'm tired of watching us 
have a starting pitcher come out in the fifth or the sixth inning without 100 pitches thrown to go to a bullpen that the number says the bullpens aren't very good. We keep running this exact same playbook over and over and over again. I'm like, what is there? And Dave Stewart, who does our television for pre and post, I'll say to Stu, I say, Stu, you never had a problem going 120 or 130. Why can't we just see if these guys can do it? Well, I mean, look, I we had Joe Madden on our podcast a couple of years, uh, last couple of years, and he described it pretty well. He said, all right, think of the auto industry. He's like, everybody is making the same car. Yeah, <laughs> I remember the this. same information, right? We're using it and we're trying to parse it. And yeah, some teams have more money, but you're kind of working off of this shared data set. And, you know, and just so go back 80s or something, Cardinals on turf and they're running and and the Harvey's wall bangers and the brewers and these teams were so different, you know, and they took on different personalities. But when you have all the, the data that's shared, then you're just trying to like out data someone, right? You're trying to, and you, you lose something in that because it's, there's more to it. And look, I, like I said, I appreciate the, the science and the digging for information. You have the information. It's just like, we have all these cameras. You can't just make a, a call that everybody can see is wrong and just act like nothing happened. So you have to use the technology, but I think that it's, you always have to push back and ask those questions so that you still maintain like, well, what kind of game do we want? Because yeah, like you said, Dave Stewart guys going into the ninth inning, it, you know, is that exciting? That's, that could be exciting for the game. And, and when you always, like I did the game the other day, it was Dodgers, um, Dodgers in Atlanta, Freddie Freeman came back. So I was calling the game, Tony Gonsolin's on the mound. This dude is nine and oh, <laughs> with like a one five. Now, granted, he didn't go always deep in the game. So sixth inning gets around, I think, and he gets two outs. He'd he give it up a hit, gives up a hit, he's out immediately. And, and we talked to Dave Roberts for the game, and he's like, that's probably what's going to happen. So there's no like, hey, let me see what Tony Gonsolin's going to do and with first and third, a little bit tired, but, you know, see what we can get out of it, right? Because that builds something in Tony Gonsolin that if you get in this situation later, you're like, oh, I've been here before. Um, but it's not, and, and so the, the, the counter, I guess, is like, well, it's not about the individual's development, right? It's not about him. It's about like, who's in the best position to get this out in this particular moment. And that's very different. But when you slice things into so many individual decision-making trees, it's very clear why you don't see the forest as well. And, and that's what we're battling a lot in baseball. Interesting that you were in Atlanta. I want to get your take on the whole Freddie Freeman, uh, how it went down. Like, we understand he comes back. He's an all-time Braves great, gets his ring, a lot of hugs. There's some tears. But it kept going for days. Now, obviously, I'm in my own world doing A's games, so I, I've only got to see a little bit of Sunday night baseball and everything. It was Clayton Kershaw – that had, I don't know if you're going to say cryptic, but it was a comment basically saying, hey, I get it. It sucked to leave and everything, but you're one of us, right? Like, you know the importance is us. You're a Dodger now. What did you take away from that series, Freeman's reactions, how do some Dodger players took it? Just what was your what was your overall take after the series? I mean, I'll tell you, man, wow. I mean, it, it was wow. Like, I'm still kind of, like, processing – being there and also just like reading today about Freddie Freeman and his agent and all these yeah. things. Like, wow. And, and so I think, well, let's take, to take you to the moment. Like, yeah, it was, it was really powerful. And, and we asked Dave Roberts in advance about all this stuff just to see, 
And so we're just like, well, you know, what is it about, okay, moving on? Like me coming up, they used to say, cut the cord, cut the cord. You're, you know, that's your, you know, we used to kind of get on each other about like the teary-eyed past. But it is healthy, as Dave Roberts underscored. It's healthy. Like this is this. You were there for twelve years. It didn't. It didn't play out like you thought. Clearly, it's even more than we we understand in some ways. But he ended up in L.A. and obviously a great team. But yeah, that that's part of life, and you try to figure out how do you reconcile it. It's, it could be painful for a long time, and he's clearly still devastated. But as Dave Roberts also said, Freddie Freeman's still an assassin in the batter's box. <laughs> and by the way, he got the game leading hit late in the game against his old team that he might be teary-eyed about, but he got in the box and he couldn't even compose himself. He was taking these deep breaths. He backed out and Spencer Strider, the pitcher for the Braves, like stepped off the mound. I mean, it was deep. And this was just like the first at bat of the third game of the series. So I, I, I think there's, there's a lot to do with the, you know, it's hard to retain players for a lifetime. And if anybody was going to do it, we thought it was Freddie Freeman. Like we just felt whether Aaron judge or whatever, but Freddie Freeman was that guy because he's beloved across the sport, but also, in Atlanta. He kind of belongs to all of us. So it doesn't matter where he plays because he just has that baseball about him, you know? Uh, so that, you know, it's a miss. And I get Alex Anthopoulos. He gets the guy who's younger, who's, you know, good player, very good in Olsen. And he's like, Hey, I got this guy for longer and I'm, you know, I got free agent years and I get the math of it. And I, Anthopoulos was choked up about it in making that move, but it just seemed like it's clear. It did not go as Freddie Freeman expected. And that is clearly still devastating. And, and it's, a, it's a big loss for everyone. But, you know, baseball will continue to move on. But as for teammates, you got to be careful. You got to be careful being like, hey, you know, why are you still like, he's still playing all-star baseball. <laughs> okay, He's still doing what he has to do. And it's very human, especially given the pandemic the last couple of years to look and be like, hey, you know, this is what I, I went through all these things with my family and these guys. Um, it's still part of me and it's made me who I am as a player, which I can deliver to the LA Dodgers. The Dodgers are, are going to be a, a good team, no doubt. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of pain there, man. A lot of pain still. Yeah. Very obvious too. You go through all that emotion and then after the series, you dump your agent. So clearly he wanted to stay in Atlanta. Negotiations went sideways. At some point we'll get the whole story, but that weekend, you know, actions speak louder than words, as they like to say, and that was a very telling weekend. Before we let you go, let's uh, – you got to buy stock in one team. I, I said yesterday, I can look at the Yankee numbers. I, I know one thing. The Yankees hit home runs. They score runs by hitting home runs. That's why and, – and you can give me all the different things that they have going now with this team. But in the end, when they get into postseason baseball, they're so reliant on home runs, I'm not buying it. Uh, I don't. You may be buying it. If you could buy stock in one team, I think the hmm. Astros, what they just showed you versus the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. But if you could buy stock, National League, American League, we're almost in July, so we got a long way to go. But if you could buy stock in one team right now, who would that be? Whew. That is a tough one. Um, it, it might be the Dodgers. It might be the Dodgers. Um, I mean, it's – they have so, first of all, everybody, every time you're facing someone, they're an MVP or runner up to an MVP <laughs> or an all-star. <laughs> I mean, they have 18 all-stars. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but it's also like they, the way they play, you know, I've seen them not, I've seen them play like so-so baseball, you know, they played the Cubs and, 
but they they find different ways to beat you. You know, they can beat you late, beat you with speed, they beat you with power, they they Freddie Freeman you, whatever that you know, he should have his own verb in there. Um and, and you know, they're they're also getting pitching from guys that are, you know, maybe what you would say is unexpected. And and you know, that's something to be said, like that that you know that they have confidence in being able to throw anybody out there in their roster and, and win. And Robert said, like, he's like, our biggest enemy is us over of like mismanaging this roster. They, he had no like weakness. He could say, <laughs> he's like, well, if I run guys into the ground, I get them hurt. Yeah. That's going to hurt us. You know, they, he didn't say yeah. like, I'm worried about the Astros or whoever. So, uh, you know, but yeah, it's people got to be healthy. That's what it comes down to. And, and I saw the Yankees and they're, they're really good. They, um, their pitching and their bullpen, you know, it, there's so many weapons. They're going to have to figure out how to use them. And, um, and judge is just playing out of his mind. And that's, that's uh but will judge stay healthy? Will Stanton stay healthy? You know, I don't know. All of a sudden when those guys aren't there, it's a different team. So, and that's happened enough to say that that's probably the rule more the exception. So, and then the Mets, you know, I look at the Mets and I see a team that's, you know, actually, you know, really good. Like they're, they do a lot of different things. And I, I, I watched this lineup and they, they go in the other way. They're beating the shift. They, you could see they have like a collective mentality around hitting to take what's given to them and they're executing. So I, I, it's fun. I'll, I'll throw the Dodgers out there. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I want to see who makes what moves at the trade deadline and then who's just fortunate enough to stay healthy. Well, I got to tell you, it's always an honor to have you on the program. You always make our show that much smarter. Continued success with everything. The podcast with Jason Stark, the Hall of Famer. Uh, You mean a lot to our game. You're fantastic. And thank you so much. And uh, let's do this again soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Always love being on, man. So just remember, love baseball, man. And it's like, it's it's for all of us. And uh, I, I hope it's, I use it for my show to bring people together and, uh, So we're all in this family, and we obviously clearly all love the game. So great to be on. Great stuff. Be well. All right, man. Take care. The great Doug Glanville right here on A's Cast Live. He is phenomenal. We'd like to thank Buster Only, Dan O'Dowd, and Doug Glanville for coming on A's Cast Live. Hope you enjoyed A's Unfiltered. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.